Thank you, Grant and Tiffany, for the beautiful music, and thank you, Pastor Kelly, for gracious invita- or gracious introduction. And uh, it's been a privilege to be hosting each evening, and I've done a pretty good job of coming out on the platform on at the right time, except for this evening. <laughs> so if you'll forgive me for that. Uh, but our message this evening is called A Reed Shaken by the Wind, and perhaps it should be A Reed Unshaken by the Wind. But as I have listened and reflected on the lives of the individuals that we've talked about this week, one thing has become extremely evident to me that all of these individuals shared one overarching commonality, and that is that they all were completely surrendered to God. They were humble and they were teachable, two of the most difficult graces to receive into your character. But these individuals did great things because they allowed God to work in them to will and to do for his good pleasure. And I believe that the true key in the journey of faith is a heart that is fully surrendered to God and guided by the Holy Spirit. And we've seen that exhibited in the lives of the men and women that we've talked about this week. And this evening, we're going to reach down deep into the pocket of divine wisdom and pull out a coin of truth untarnished by the passage of time. And it may be something you haven't thought about before, but that truth is this. The message is the magnet. The message is the magnet. Now, how many of you enjoy playing with magnets? Lots of hands. You know, when you're a kid, you often like, you like to do this. But I'm not sure that we ever grow out of our fascination with these marvelous little objects. And I learned recently that there is a magnetic laboratory in Tallahassee, Florida. It's called the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory, and the interesting thing about it is that scientists come from all over the world to study magnets, to study magnetic fields for uses and applications in all types of industries and all types of technology and various different ways that they can be used. And there's some fascinating things to know about magnets. Magnets have two poles. Guess what they're called? North and south. And it's interesting, if you had a magnet that is a pole, or that is a bar, and you were to cut it in half, you wouldn't have a north pole magnet and a south pole magnet. The magnets would each realign, and you would have two magnets, each with a north pole and a south pole. And you'll remember when you were a kid, some of you, even, I don't know if they have these anymore, but they used to make magnets in the shape of a horseshoe. Remember that? They would do this because they were trying to bring the poles together in in order to increase the magnetic force by aligning the poles. Now, magnetic force is measured in a unit called a Tesla. Now, the strength of, to try to put it in perspective here, the Earth's magnetic field is one twenty-thousandths of a Tesla. So that might not mean anything, but how many of you have ever been for an MRI? Now, MRI machines, those wonderful machines that are round, look like a donut that they put you in, 
MRI machines have a magnet in there that is anywhere from half a Tesla to maybe two Teslas. By way of perspective, a, a one and a half Tesla MRI machine is, has a magnet that's 30,000 times stronger than the, mag, the, the Earth's magnetic field. Now, in that laboratory I mentioned a moment ago, they have the world's most powerful sustainable magnet, 45 Teslas, 900,000 times the magnetic force of the Earth. But if we think about magnets, the most wonderful and fascinating quality is the fact that if you put two magnets together, pole to pole, what do they do? They resist each other. They will push each other away. But the thing that's most exciting about magnets is that when you, the, the ability of a magnet, this invisible force, to attract things to itself, the message is the magnet. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth as it is in Jesus. We thank you for calling us to your kingdom for such a time as this. And Father, we ask once again for the power, the wisdom, and the guidance of your spirit to keep our minds keen and sharp, to keep our feet on the path that leads to heaven, and to keep us close to Jesus. Be with us now as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It was September 1939. The clouds of war had been for many years uh, coming over the European continent. Uh, the year before, in 1938, March, Hitler had annexed Austria, and it didn't appear as though he had any plans to slow down his conquest. On a little while later, in this, the King of England, it was, night, it was March 1st, 1931, as many of you remember from reading in your history books, Hitler went in and conquered Poland. Two days later, Great Britain declared war on Germany. King George II knew that if the cause of Britain was to prevail, he needed his people to be united. And so, to this end, he sent them a message. This message was delivered via the radio to the people of Great Britain. King George began his message in this way. In this grave hour, perhaps the most fateful in our history, I send to every household of my peoples, both at home and overseas, this message, spoken with the same depth of feeling for each one of you as if I were able to cross your threshold and speak to you myself. The message of the king was to be the magnet that would draw his people together and unite them behind the cause of Great Britain. The message was the magnet. The message was to bring his people together in unity. It was to give them purpose. It was to solidify their identity, to give them focus, to give them resilience, to give them perseverance, and to give them power. The message was the magnet. After outlining the threat and discussing what would be necessary in order to meet it, 
King George concluded his message with the following words. It is to this high purpose that I now call my people at home and my peoples across the seas who will make our cause their own. I ask them to stand calm and firm and united in this time of trial. The task will be hard. There may be dark days ahead, and the war can no longer be confined to the battlefield. But we can only do the right as we see the right and reverently commit our cause to God. The message was the magnet. And if an earthly king can use a message to call his people together and unite them behind a common purpose, what about the heavenly king? Our message tonight is about the man who was entrusted with what is perhaps the greatest message ever committed to a human being. John the Baptist was called by Jesus the greatest of the prophets. And I would suggest to you this evening that the reason that John was the greatest of the prophets was because he was entrusted with the greatest of messages. But I don't want to begin our story with John. I want to go back to another time and another place and another message. In fact, this message is the first message given to the human race after sin entered the world. Outside the gates of Eden, God's people were in grave danger. There was an enemy at the gate, and God needed to get them a message so that they could face the crisis ahead. This message is found, of course, in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to put it on the screen. We know it today as the Proto-Evangelium, the first message of the gospel given to the human race after sin came into the world. Genesis chapter 3.15, many of you probably know this by heart. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The message is the magnet. Like a magnet, this message was designed by God to draw us out of and away from sin and back into relationship, loving, obedient relationship with himself. And what is more, this message given here in Genesis was a precursor and a promise of the greatest message ever given to the human race. The message of love from a father's heart embodied in the life and the person of Jesus Christ. As the Bible tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And within the context of this overarching message, God has sent prophet after prophet with message after message, each one intended to draw us out of sin and away from sin and to bat and back into relationship with him. The message is the magnet. 
We see this clearly in Luke chapter 13, verse 34. As Jesus' feet are tending toward the cross, having left the precincts of the sanctuary and been rejected by the people that he came to save, he looks over the city that he loves and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets. And why was it that Jerusalem killed the prophets? Why was it that God's Prophets that he sent were persecuted and killed. Was it not because of the message, the messages that they bore? And stones them that are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered you, drawn you through these messages to myself? You and your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. The message is the magnet. In order to understand the message of John the Baptist, we need to start with Elijah. As Pastor Rees mentioned the other night, there are three Elijahs brought to light in Scripture. Of course, there's the Elijah of the Old Testament that we're going to look at in a minute. Then there's the Elijah which was John the Baptist who came in the power, of, the power and spirit of Elijah. And then there's the Elijah God's people at the end of time that prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. Thinking back to the message of Elijah in the Old Testament, Elijah was given a message by God to bring to his people during a time of universal apostasy. In fact, Ellen White tells us that Elijah was the voice of one crying in the wilderness to rebuke sin and press back the tide of evil. And while he came to the people as a reprover of sin, his message offered the balm of Gilead to the sin-sick souls, all who desired to be healed. Do you see the drawing power of the message? The message is the magnet. The message that God gave Elijah was specifically designed by God to draw the people away from their sin, away from their idolatry, and back to himself. In fact, if you read the story there on Mount Carmel, it's fascinating. Elijah, after he repairs the altar, do you know what he does? He calls the people to himself. It was through the straight testimony of the message given as God had directed that brought conviction to the people. They were drawn to God through the message of Elijah because the message was the magnet. Not everyone, however, was drawn to the message given by God through Elijah. There were those like Ahab and Jezebel who had a message of their own. And like two magnets put together pole to pole, the magnet, instead of drawing them, the message, instead of drawing them as God had intended, actually pushed them away because of the hardness of their heart and their refusal to accept the message. In the message of the first Elijah, we find the foundation for the message of the second Elijah. In his announcement to Zechariah, the angel Gabriel connected the message that God had given Elijah to the message that God was going to give to John the Baptist. 
Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the Bible tells us, Gabriel speaking here, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The message that God had given, was going to give to John the Baptist was the magnet that was going to draw his people not only to himself, but it was going to draw them to one another. That message was calculated by God not only to bring them back into relationship with him, but to bring them back into unity with one another. The message that God had given to John was to draw them out of their sin. It was also to point them to the fulfillment of the promise given back in Eden, the first message that the Messiah would come one day. The message is the magnet. And Jesus said, John the Baptist in, Re- in Matthew chapter eleven fourteen, if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And if you look at the context here, Jesus is speaking specifically of the message that God had given through John the Baptist to draw the people to himself, to uplift Christ as the Messiah and to call them out of sin and apostasy. And just so we're clear as to how central the message was to the ministry of John, if you go back and take your Bibles out later, you can look at how John is introduced in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. It's exactly the same. John is called the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what is it that you do with a voice? You give a message. John was literally the message of God crying in the wilderness. And the message is the magnet. Everything in John's life hinged upon the message that God had given him. This this is the most significant and most important thing in John's life. In fact, apart from the message... John was called for that purpose. John's mission, his calling, everything about him was wrapped up in the message that God had given him to share with others. And John's message was a message of reformation. It was a call to repentance. It was a call to return to God and to trust in Jesus. It was a call to obedience. In fact, Paul, speaking later on of the message that John bore, said this in Acts chapter 19. John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. A message calling people out of sin, uplifting Jesus as the remedy and the solution for their sin. Ellen White says that John's message was to bring the light of God to the world. John was to give new direction to people's thinking. His message was to impress his hearers with the holiness of God and reveal to all their hopeless condition and need of a Savior. Now, I hope you're thinking with me because remember, 
there is a third Elijah. I want you to notice John, Luke chapter 7, verse 30, Jesus speaking of the message of John says this, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. In rejecting, the implication here in this verse is that in rejecting the message that God had sent through John, the Pharisees and the lawyers were not rejecting the man. They were rejecting the God who was behind the message given through the man. When God raises up someone with a message, we can't simply play fast and loose with a message without imperiling our souls. The Pharisees thought they were rejecting the ministry of some uneducated, Johnny-come-lately preacher from the wilderness. They weren't just rejecting a man. They were rejecting the message. And the message was the magnet specifically crafted by God to contain the very truth that they needed in order to separate them from their sin and to bring them back into the path of salvation and a loving relationship with God. It was the message that would have caused them to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. John's message was the magnet. Now, the message of Elijah did not find its complete fulfillment in the ministry of John. In the message of the second Elijah, we find the foundation for the message of the third. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the Bible tells us, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. In every age, God has raised up individuals to whom he has entrusted messages that are especially calculated to prepare people for the salvific event that is about to take place. And we are living in a time when we are about to witness the second coming of Jesus and there's a world that needs to know that he is coming so that they can take refuge and find hope before it's too late. And as the time of the first advent drew near, God raised up John the Baptist. And as the time of the second advent of Jesus draws near, God has again raised up a messenger to bring his preparatory message to the world. Ellen White says this in early writings, John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah to proclaim the first advent of Jesus. I was pointed down to the last days and saw that John represented those who should go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah to herald the day of wrath and the second advent of Jesus. In the last days, God has raised up his remnant church, with a message to give the world to prepare them for the second coming of Jesus. The message is the magnet. It is calculated to draw the faithful out of error, out of apostasy, into the light of the truth of God's word. And God has predicted the rise of his end-time Elijah, his end-time people, in his word. 
John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says this, And other sheep have I which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring, and they will hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Jesus indicates that his voice, his message, would be heard in the last days and that that message would be a magnet to draw his people wherever they might be into one fold so that they can be ready when he comes and be prepared to stand with him through the times that lie ahead. God's present truth message entrusted to the Seventh-day Adventist church to proclaim to the world as we know is found in Revelation chapter 14. The cornerstone of that message is found in verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. The message that God's people have been called to proclaim in these last days is the everlasting gospel. And this message is the magnet that is to draw God's people back to Scripture. This message opens to our view the content of the everlasting gospel. It calls us back to the God of the Bible. It's God's present truth message calculated to prepare the world for Jesus' second return. And it is the impetus of our ministry and of our mission to prepare the world to follow and be ready for Jesus' soon return. Ellen White puts it like this, 14th volume, of the manuscript releases the 14th chapter, she says, of Revelation outlines the work that is to be done by God's people. The everlasting gospel is to be preached and to be practiced. True missionary work is to be done not in the wisdom of men, but in the wisdom of God. Revelation 14 is the final proclamation of the everlasting gospel to go to the world before Jesus returns. It is the fulfillment of the great commission given by Jesus in Matthew 28. This message is a judgment hour message. It's a message that calls our attention to the reality of the heavenly sanctuary, the reality of Jesus' ministry there on our behalf. It is a message of righteousness by faith that calls us to worship the Creator. It establishes the authenticity of the Genesis account of origins as literal and historical and consistent with what Jesus and the apostles taught. It establishes a place of obedience in the life of the believer and it uplifts the seventh-day Sabbath as a sign of loyalty to God. This message is the magnet. It is the message that God has specifically designed to call his people to himself in these last days. It's the message that God has designed to call his people together in unity in these last days. I want to turn our attention now back to John for a moment. 
want to look at some of the lessons from the life of John that bear directly upon us who have been called to take this message to the world. There are five observations I would like to make. The first one is that John was fully and completely surrendered to God. John chapter 3, verse 29, John is speaking. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him, hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. The attention which was fixed upon him, John had deliberately directed to Jesus. You remember reading about George Mueller. George Mueller was asked the question to one time, what was the secret in his life? And this is what he replied. There was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, his will, died to the world, its approval or its censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and my friends. And since then I have studied to show myself approved only to God. The secret of John's ministry was he must increase, I must decrease. Ellen White in Conflict and Courage says this, in order to give such a message as John gave, we must have a spiritual experience like his. The same work must be wrought in us. We must behold God and by beholding him lose sight of self. Second observation was that John was faithful in the work that God set before him. From a superficial glance, it might seem as though John's life was a failure. His son rose in obscurity and it set in tragedy. John's life appears on the pages of Holy Writ like a meteor that streaks across the sky with brilliance but is gone as quickly as it appears. John's message had stirred the nation, it had stirred the hearts of the people, and his life ended at the very point when he seemed to be poised and in a position to change the world. And the people evidently were wrestling with this, trying to understand the purpose of John's life and ministry, so much so that Jesus felt it necessary to answer their unasked question. Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 10 Jesus, it's, the Bible tells us, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yea, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. In this verse, Jesus indicates a very strong negation. Was John a reed shaken in the wind? That is, was he a man of unstable disposition? Was he of weak and cowardly conduct? 
Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus applauds the invincible courage and consistency in the man who faithfully bore the message that God had given him to share, even at the cost of his own life. Third observation, John did not hide his identity or allow himself to be distracted from his mission. John was unswayed by the secular and religious opinions of his day. He was unmoved by political pressure and unashamed of the message that God had given him to share with the world. Ellen White reveals that John's ministry was carried out in a time when discontent was verging on revolution, perhaps not unlike the times in which we live. John could very easily have leveraged his influence for political gain. He could have used his position to further any number of political causes. Ellen White tells, in fact, that's exactly the temptation that Satan presented before him. But John had one agenda, and that agenda was the message that God had entrusted him to take to the world. And you know, sometimes I fear that today that the the unity that we used to have based on our doctrinal beliefs has has been set aside by the the disunity that has come in because of our political stances. And I want to tell you this morning, or this afternoon, this evening rather, that oftentimes we are on this side or that side and we need to be on this side. John's agenda was the message. And that message was the magnet that drew the people to God. Ninth volume of the testimony, page 19. We've already heard this once tonight, amazingly enough. We didn't coordinate, but the Holy Spirit oftentimes coordinates things when we're not aware. Ellen White says this, in a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are allowing nothing to absorb their attention, nothing else to absorb their attention their attention. Fourth observation, John spoke the truth in love and without compromise. In the text we read a moment ago, Jesus is essentially asking the people, what did you go out to see? And in his response, it's evident that they didn't go out to see anything. They went out to hear a message It was a message of truth that captured their hearts. It was a message that stirred their hearts. It was the message given with clarity and conviction that drew them to the wilderness to hear John. 
And I want to tell you today, it is the message that God has given us, preached, proclaimed, shared with clarity and conviction that will draw the world to Jesus. The message is the magnet. The message of truth proclaimed to the world in these last days, proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, will change lives and bring people to the foot of the cross. The people didn't go out into the wilderness to hear religious platitudes that would make them feel comfortable in their sin. They weren't attracted to the opinions of men or what today we might call popular skepticism. Seems vogue today to question everything. John didn't try to soften his message so as not to offend those that were trapped in the stronghold of sin. John knew there were certain things that need to be said in a certain way in order to break up the stony ground of the heart. And sometimes today I think we live in constant fear that our message might offend someone. Now we don't want to be offensive. But if we are constantly hiding those portions of the gospel that God has designed to break up the stony ground so that the seed of truth can take root, we will actually wind up affirming people in their sin and sending them away empty. Ellen White said this, our message must be as direct as was the message of John. He rebuked kings for their iniquity, Notwithstanding that his life was imperiled, he did not hesitate to declare the word of God. And our work in this age must be done just as faithfully. You know, John was not educated according to the conventional wisdom of his day. He didn't attend the formal institutions of learning. And he was disdained by those who had for his audacity and the simplicity of his message in calling out their sin and holding them accountable. Those who seek to be relevant to the culture by speaking its language and mimicking its ethos will join the culture when things become difficult. The message of John was the magnet. And sometimes we become so focused on the man that we forget the message or we miss the message. Our focus needs to be on the man so that we can catch his message and be drawn to him. Fifth and last observation, John understood this truth. God's message was and is the magnet. John understood that his ministry was not about him. It was about the message that God had given him to proclaim. His goal was not to draw attention to himself. He didn't try to help the message along by engaging in methodologies that would appeal to the carnal nature of those he was trying to reach. People flocked to hear him not because he had the latest theatrical accoutrements. People in John's day as in ours were longing for hope they were longing for meaning and purpose in their lives. It was the message of truth spoken with authority and conviction that gave them a glimmer of hope in their otherwise hopeless existence. John was called to be a reformer, and so are we. 
The Reformation didn't, begin, didn't end in 1517. It didn't even, begin, didn't even end in 1531 with the Augsburg Confession. Today, the message of the Bible is to be given in its glorious simplicity, and it's to cut across the commonly held errors of our day. The message that God has given us to proclaim is the capstone of the Reformation. It's to call a people back to the Bible, back to faithfulness, back to relationship with the God who loves them, the God who's coming soon. And three nights ago, Pastor Rees called us back to our mission. Two nights ago, Pastor Bentley called us back to prayer. Last night, Pastor Conway called us back to the Bible. And tonight, I want to call us back to our message. The message is the magnet that will draw the world back to Christ and prepare them to live each day for him and to share this message until that great event when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. Ellen White says this, the most solemn message ever committed to mortals has been entrusted to this people and they can have a powerful influence if they will be sanctified by it. If you want to reach people for Jesus, the message is the magnet. The message is the magnet lived out in a life surrendered fully to Christ. The message is the magnet preached with clarity from the pulpit. The message is the magnet lived in the home as you interact with your family. The message is the magnet seen in the lives of individuals unashamed to belong to Jesus. Letter 60, 1898, Ellen White wrote the following words. Our work now is to enlighten the world. In the place of bearing a peace and safety message, a banner has been placed in our hands upon which is inscribed, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is a distinct and separating message a message that is to give no uncertain sound. It is to lead people away from the broken sisters that can, cisterns that contain no water to the fountain of living water. On May 18, 1861, the Army of Tennessee, under the direction of Ulysses S. Grant, besieged the Confederate stronghold at Vicksburg, Mississippi. On the 22nd, Grant launched a major assault on Vicksburg. And one particular section of the fortified Confederate line was extremely strong. They were back behind some bulwarks, crossed a field, up a little incline. And the only way the Union soldiers were going to take that was to walk out across that open field in plain view of those fortified Confederate muskets. There were five regiments ordered to attack that section, and one of them was the 99th Illinois. And the day before, there had been some skirmishes, and their color bearer had been wounded. And so the commanding officer asked for a volunteer to carry the Union flag. The colors of the regiment. A young man, 32 years old, named Thomas Higgins, volunteered. The Union soldiers were given the command to advance. 
Higgins in the center of that column carrying the colors. Confederate soldier later described the scene in this way. After a most terrific cannonade of two hours during which the very earth rocked and pulsated like a thing of life, the head of the charging column appealed, appeared above the brow of the hill. About 100 yards in front of the breast, and as line after line of blue came in sight over the hill, it presented the grandest spectacle to the eye the soldier has ever beheld. And as those Union lines advanced on that Confederate bulwark, up and down that Confederate line, the command was given to fire. And like one unified gun, those muskets rang out across that battlefield and over and over, volley after volley, musket fire penetrated that Union line and that blue line vanished in the morning smoke. And then it was quiet and silent on the battlefield. And as the smoke began to clear, there was seen there on the battlefield the waving in the morning breeze, the Union flag, still clutched in the hands of Thomas Higgins, still coming across the battlefield alone, holding the colors high. And all at once along that Confederate line, no less than a hundred muskets were leveled on that one Union soldier, carrying out the command that he had been given. Because you see, earlier that morning when Higgins' commanding officer had placed the colors in his hand. He had told him, Higgins, don't stop until you've planted that flag within the Confederate works. And as the muskets cracked out again across that battlefield, Higgins holding that flag, the Confederate line waiting for the smoke to clear. And as the smoke cleared, there was the flag still waving in the breeze. There was Higgins still coming across the battlefield, now only a short distance away. Muskets once again raised, and all at once they realized that perhaps this man shouldn't be shot. And word went up and down the Confederate line, don't shoot him. And Higgins pressed ahead up across that parapet, and he planted that Union flag within the Confederate line. He was later released, and at the recommendation of those Confederate soldiers, he was given the Medal of Honor. Friends, Jesus has placed his message in your hands. He has given you a command, press forward to the finish. Don't stop until you stand with me on the sea of glass. And as Jerry and Winter and Grant play a song for us, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the message that is the magnet that God has placed within your hands to reach those within your center circle of influence. Will you be dissuaded in the heat of the battle to turn aside? Or will you press forward to the finish? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.
www.audioverse.org.